Wow. You guys are really in for an amazing ride today. Like the adventure we go on is full of vision and wonder and depth and heart and challenge, just like any great adventure. Uh, Uh, Dumas is amazing. Yeah. I don't know what more to add to that. I'd say let's just get into it. Two outlaws on the lamb, taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. And we're live with another episode of Moped Outlaws, and we're here with a very special guest, Jonathan, and now is your last name Dumas? It's Dumas. 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 Yeah, I got to add that uh, accent so folks know, get a little right. uh, get a little fancy with it. <laughs> I like that. Right. Yeah. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite, y'all. I really appreciate it. This is so fun. I've been making the rounds and doing a lot of podcasts recently. Um, and uh, this is literally one of my favorite things to do. Right on, right on. Um, and you have your own podcast, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I host a show. Um, it's called Highly Visible and a Little Misunderstood. I've been doing that for three years. Um, Honestly, it was a hobby turned part-time job now. <laughs> um, I, it, it's one of those things where, you know, you start doing it, you love it a lot, and then people also start to love it a lot. And then um, folks are like, uh, yeah, you should just keep on doing this thing. And it's trying to morphed and transformed into something where I have big, complex conversations in nuanced ways um, because, you know, we live in a social media age where things get lost in translation and the comment section and folks aren't really actually having conversations and people are digging into their own perspectives and where they come from and all these different things. And my thing is, is like, it's a very, very black space, but I invite folks to come in, join and listen into those, those conversations. Um, also learn something, laugh, be inspired, um, to do some very impactful social change in their own lives. Um, in the everyday things that they're doing, not just like, you know, the big, big things, but you know, how, what kind of conversations you have with your family? Um, and so I hope I spark those kinds of things the, with the show. Yeah, sometimes it's those things that are really the most pivotal for each of us, because if we each did something in our own five meter sphere of influence, incremental mm-hmm. change would begin to flow out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, one of the biggest things that, um, I've had to learn, um, and I'm still young, but I thought, you know, I look up to all these like civil rights leaders and, um, big time folks that do like change and work for other people. Right. And we see these big movements, we see marches, we see, you know, sit-ins, we see, um, walkouts, all these different things. Um, but those are like their journey, the things that they're, that they are, that they feel like they need to do to make those big changes. 99% of the things that we could do to make change, um, is the incremental stuff is the everyday conversation is like, you know, how we respond to things at work, um, with our friends, within our own selves. And um, that's something that I've had to learn that a lot of the work that I can do, a lot of the impactful work that I can do just starts with where I'm at now, the spheres of influence that I have now and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think what comes to my mind is Emmett Smith's mother. I imagine mm. her choice of an open casket was not in her mind, a big 
social movement, it -hmm. was a very personal choice she made, which that choice still resonates very strongly with me today. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps... Go ahead. Sorry, Greg. Well, perhaps our small choices that we're making day to day, Mm. you know, will have some divine providence in a social change. Absolutely. And and what's interesting about that, and that's that's a pretty good example, because she said, you know, her big thing was like, I don't think anybody would have blamed her if she said a closed casket. Right. Like we saw all saw the images and stuff like that. But she said they need to see what they did to my son. Right. They need to see what they did to my son. And I don't know if she knew that the ripple effects or impact or like how widespread that that was going to be or how where his face was going to be seen all over the country. And now even, you know, years later, um, decades later that we're still seeing uh, his face. Right. I don't know if she would knew that that impact. I think that she wanted to show folks what is going on. And so to your point, it's just like that, that small decision um, does have ripple effects. And we just don't, don't know, uh, don't know what those things are. Um, and even growing up, I think some people were like, Oh, you know what? You're like going to change the world. And I used to think that I, that meant I was going to go out and do a lot of things. But what that actually means is like, I could, you know, have an impact on one person and maybe they will change the world or that one person, that one person will have an impact and they'll just ripple. And that has, that's what changes the world really. So yeah. How much do you think there's connected with the world changes as you change your inner world? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I have moved away from this idea of um, I'm moving away from like more of an individualistic mindset. It's more to a communal space. And so I truly believe that like whatever I do, the decisions I make, um, whatever happens to me truly matters in the grander things to you, Mark, to you, Greg. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I can see myself, if I could see the humanity and other people, then I think that there is an, uh, in ways I'm, I'm seeing a mirror image of myself. And so I have to, I I think to your, to your question, Greg, I, I think that there is, um, I think that the decisions I make and how I treat myself, how I treat people do really impact the grander, the grander scheme of things. So if I think about it, um, we're all in community. I see myself and other folks and I have to, I can't just like go about this world as if like my decisions or the things that I do or say or don't do don't impact other people. I just can't live that way anymore. Yeah. There's this aspect of we are fed disenfranchisement. There's a kind of Mm. cultural context, which has us feel less than or feel powerless. And when we reestablish the locus of control over our own experience and the people around us, that's an invitation back into a place of agency, a place where Mm. we can actually make an impact. Mm -hmm. And then community is the direct result of each of us owning our own experience at that level and then creating bonds, which facilitate our mutual benefit. Cause we're all mm. at the end of the day, we aren't separate. We're one thing. We're all part of this amazing experience of being alive. Yeah. And you know, the, the funny, the, the not funny <laughs> the thing that people <laughs> say is no one's free until everyone's free. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the recognition of our interdependence, but Mm. I can't set out to try to fix this, the, you know, 
Israel and Gaza right now mm-hmm. in the sense of direct intervention by me. Mm-hmm. What I have to do is stop warring with people who disagree with me in mm-hmm. the spaces that I occupy and create dialogue and, and healing in that way. And that mm-hmm. becomes the nexus by which the rest of it can shift. I think mm-hmm. that's my philosophy anyway. No, I, I, I love that point. That's such a really good point. And I think that, that, that is, that's, that's the, that's the thing. Right. Um, and I feel like th- there's a certain extent to which we've like, it's always been there, but I think it has been exacerbated now, um, by a lot of like a lot of reasons why technology, social media, all those different things as to why we can't have like actual conversations and like agree to disagree, but agree on the fact that like agree on like fundamental things that like wrongful killing of people is like wrong. Like when we right. see an act, when we see a video where somebody is like treated inhumanely, right. um, and I'm not just even thinking about like Israel and Gaza. I'm thinking about even like the videos that we saw, you know, I see on a, all the time with uh, black bodies just being uh, not treated well. Right. I think that there's just so like, I, I think it's hard for me to be like, well, how do you not see that this is wrong? Right. What do you, what other cases and things um, uh, do you need to see? And I was asked one time on another show a couple years back, they said, what, what do you say to people who like, disagree with you or say like, Oh, you know, uh, (laughs) like abolishing the police is like whatever. And, you know, like say that you're wrong. And I say, I say, I say to them, like, that's, that's cool that you, that you think that I'm wrong, but like, are we going to have a productive conversation that leads to a solution where these things don't happen anymore, where those solutions don't happen? Cause if you're not interested in doing that, then like, there's actually not much for me for what I do, there's other people that will like work with you and talk with you and navigate that with you. But I don't do that anymore because like I did do that. And like, it's exhausting for me to teach you, to show you, to break yeah. this down, to give you resources. Like you're an adult. <laughs> yeah. If I did it, you could do it. I don't need to, um, well, it's yeah. up to people or, like or pay me. me or pay me. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's yeah. up to people who look like me to decolonize their own mind. It's not up to yeah. people like you to have to do that work for me. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think that's a very individual thing. Like in a sense, this organic whole, we have the individual responsibility of our own healing to the healing of the whole. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's 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 that both and two, where like the work that we need to do individually um, impacts that whole. But it doesn't mean that we separate from the whole. It doesn't mean we separate from community. Right. 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 And so when we think about even, so when I say I'm an organizational psychologist, some folks get stuck on the psychologist part. Uh, I'm not like a trained therapist. Or I got a question. Yeah. Got a question. <laughs> uh, so, but I will say like, I've done a good amount of work as far as like, you know, a lay person's like understanding of, of this. And so when I look at like even mental health services, right, it's, it was developed from an individualistic lens um, in a way that like is very cognitive. And, but when we, but what science, what research has shown us, what psychologists have shown us, what sociologists, sociologists have shown us and seen in this is that um, trauma exists actually in the body that our body reacts uh, faster than our brains actually do cognitively. 
And so when we talk about, um, when we talk about, we see something, an image, we feel it in our bodies. We feel like a, a, a burning, a vibration, whatever it is, there's a reaction for our bodies before it's in our brain. And so with that individual healing there, it, there's a process that happens. Obviously therapy, I, I've been going to therapy fairly consistently for the last three years, but um, shout out Sam. But I would say that there is a, there is an aspect of community that can be healing that like is restorative, that um, mm. reminds us of our connectedness that is also necessary as well as that individual piece. Um, I know that, yeah, that's, you weren't saying that against that, uh, Greg, but I just want to make sure for folks listening, like I think that there's a, a, a wonderful balance that is like, Daggum. Like it, there's something about it when you get to people that like you could just be with, um, that push you, that challenge you, that you can laugh with, that love you, that support you, that encourage you, that empower you, that, uh, it's just, there's something holistic about it. Um, yeah. What are the ways that you drive that in the ways that you work with organizations? Hmm. I remind those organizational leaders that their employees are people. There is a, like in my research of like work, I, I I don't know that there's just like, you know, employees, employer, it's just very like, almost like sterile language. Right. And I have never, even from the very jump of when I started working, uh, when I was like 15, 16 years old, I have never bought into that. Like, why are you like, you're a human being. When we step outside this building, you're no longer my boss. Like (laughs) you, you go, you, you fart, poop, you, you, you know, you laugh, cry, do all that stuff just as I do. And so I think that when I talk to organizational leaders, I remind them of the humanity of their employers or excuse me, of their employees, of the people that they're leading. Right. And there is a level of responsibility when you're put into a leadership role to lead them to, um, to give space for them to be human, even at work. Um, and a lot of people, when I say that, they're like, well, you need to separate yourself. And I'm like, that is a ridiculous thing to say. You're asking for your employees to disassociate themselves from themselves when they work at, come into the workplace, to have two separate personalities, right? Um, and I don't think that that has ever been true, particularly for marginalized communities and folks with marginalized identities, to separate themselves, right? Because I still experience racism in the workplace, um, I still experience microaggressions. I still am not treated the same by colleagues and clients. Um, but my other colleagues are able to do that. Right. And so I think that there is a, an expectation, uh, to separate, uh, my blackness from (laughs) my work self, which that even me trying to say that it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, I push, I push him, I push my coaches, the people that I coach to embrace their humanity, to embrace their fullness so that they can experience joy. But I also, um, push, uh, organizational leaders, um, managers and so on to remember the humanity of, of their employees. Cause it's incredibly crucial. And that's how you create belonging. That's how you can create, um, include inclusivity. Cause when you see them, um, you're actually able to treat them, um, better. <laughs> So what are some of the tools that you give them? Mm. That's a good question. Oftentimes we talk about scenarios and I remind them, um, we, oftentimes we'll do like a perspective taking, right? So for example, for my, for my coaching clients, they'll, 
the way that they talk about themselves sometimes, I'm like, I don't know if you realize this, but you're being very disrespectful and condemning and shaming and guilting you, like in the language that you're using. Hmm. And so I just want to mirror back what you said. And I want to hear from you. Is that something that you would actually tell a friend, tell a colleague, tell somebody that you're leading? Um, and they would say, absolutely not. And then I, 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 I'm, and I challenge them to reframe it. Like, let's talk about this from an asset, asset based perspective. Like, and when they do that, they realize I actually was going through a lot, had too much on my plate. I was go, they list out all the things that actually, <laughs> uh, create uh, grace. For into, them. Yeah, exactly. And speak into why they probably didn't accomplish this thing or do this thing or where they want to be or quote unquote should be. Right. And I do something similar with organizational leaders. I remind them again of, you know, you have no idea what folks are dealing with at home. Right. And as much as I preach, bring your authentic self to work, a lot of workplaces aren't safe. It's so somebody asked me, how do I become a safe person? Well, you can't become a safe person. You just are a safe person. You create safe spaces. You create brave spaces for folks to be. And that means that you show some level of vulnerability. You show some level of like letting your guard down, showing that you are human rather than all the barriers that, you know, leaders and quote unquote bosses and managers have been taught and socialized to put up because all of a sudden you're a leader and you have to have all the answers. Absolutely not. You're still human. You're still figuring it out. Um, and yeah, it's okay to let the people that you lead know that because like they actually respect that more. Um, so yeah, those are some of the like scenario and kind of tools, just a lot of perspective taking question, deep questions, giving space for them to think and ponder. Um, yeah. From a psychological perspective, how have you found balance in the desire and need for safe space mm. for growth, but also the need to be out of one's comfort zone for growth. Hmm. I think because I believe that growth happens in that uncomfortable place. I think if we remain in like this, like insulated space where like we're being told things that we've heard all of our life, um, like it feels comfortable, it feels safe. Like, oh, I know that. That's okay. And I think that our brains, you know, as human beings, um, they're they're wired, right? Like, there's um, I can't remember the part of the brain, but there's basically like we're, there's all these data points that we're ingesting all of our life, um, every single day. So many, um, and we're keeping record. Our brains keep records of that, so that we're able to like navigate life as safely as possible to to preserve ourselves, right? But I think I challenge myself and I challenge other people to just open up a little, right? Like just feel uncomfortable enough where like you say, you know what? I, that that's new to me. Like lead life with curiosity, lead life with wonder, lead life with like a pondering. Um, and just see if there's a different way to do that. Cause I think that that is where the growth happens, where you don't assume to know, you don't assume to be right. You don't assume to have all the right answers. Um, yeah. Hopefully I answered that question. <laughs> yeah. I think what just occurs yeah. to me is like in this space right here, if I have trust in you, Jonathan and you, Mark, and then you guys can encourage me, go out of your comfort zone and I can do that because I know you guys have my back. Mm -hmm. So there's yeah. a support. And me going out of my comfort zone. 
that supports that going out of one's comfort zone. Because mm-hmm. part of what you said earlier at the beginning of our conversation is you engage primarily in very black conversations. And mm-hmm. I was one of my curiosities was how do I support that as a white mm-hmm. male and not feel I'm being cut out of a hole. Mm. And part of what I'm sensing now is there's an element of respecting that space, knowing that that's creating that environment of growth that I will be folded into at the appropriate Mm. time. Mm. That's yes. That's such a good uh, point, Greg. And I think let me make one like, uh, distinction and clarification too. When I say black space, it, it means that like I'm a black host. And so my perspective is very, that this is the, my identity, my blackness, my identity, that uh, part of my identity is like so important to me and so crucial. It means so much in an American context that like it, it will be that, that is it, it, that is what it is. Right. And I think the very nature of me having a show and putting it out into the world that that opens myself up to like, whoever can come, like it's an open door, right? You can come in and listen in. Right. I think, but I have all kinds of folks on the show, um, from different identities and so forth. So like, I think when I say black space, it's like, it's because it's come from my perspective, um, and my blackness. And I fully embrace that. But I think when I invite the invitation, when folks come on and want to come, support the show and like actually legitimately like the show. It's not to say I'm, I'm pushing anybody out. And I think that that's the, that's the thing, right? When I black folks, um, Asian folks, like indigenous folks, like all these plethora of people have in the, I'll just use America in the context of America have been told you are not allowed here. This is a white only space throughout the history of the U S right. Um, but I think that there have been moments where when black folks say like, Oh, like you see a bunch of black people or, um, a bunch of Latina, uh, Latina people or whatever, um, white folks are like, Oh, then I'm not allowed, which has never been further from the truth. When we look at, um, historically black colleges and universities, there's white people that go there all the time. Right. But I think that there are, uh, I think that there is a uncomfortability when, uh, white folks into those spaces, um, that they're like, oh, I'm not welcome here. Um, oh, I can't be allowed here. I can't like input here or whatever. But I think that, no, we've never actually said that. Some people have, but um, but I think that what you said is very important. Respect the space, right? Acknowledge your whiteness. Acknowledge what you, all of the context of who you are brings into that space. Because I think that black folks and other um, marginalized identities do that on a constant basis. And so I think the to be naive to that point or reject that point or even deny that point um, makes you inherently dangerous to be in spaces like that because you could cause probably unintentionally harm um, when you don't acknowledge that. And so I think the fact that you're like, Oh, like how do I do that as a white person? Cause I don't want to do that. But I, but I also know, like, I want to respect that. I, you know what? You got, you got grace, Greg. At that point, it's like, all right, you acknowledge it. You know, you got grace. Uh, absolutely. And just like, just know that. Right. And, um, not know that you have grace, but like, know that you're white (laughs) and a white guy in those spaces. And so like, please excuse my ignorance. Like anytime I enter a space that I'm like, whatever, I'm just like, yo, sorry if this, I just want to make sure, you know, whatever. Um, 
before I say something or anything like that, or I do my own research. There's a lot of things I could do on my own before I enter those days, but that's just a little bit um, that I would say on that. One of the things that occurs to me, Jonathan, when you speak this way is that there's a, a risk to being tentative because again, it's playing into the separation modality. When you enter a space th- with white guilt mm. and fear, you're propagating that divisionary thing. It's just, it's the shadow side of wanting to dissolve the kinds of things that keep us disconnected. And so mm-hmm. it, it requires of people who look like me, the ability to not center themselves, mm-hmm. not feel like their opinion is primal. Yep. And then to be able to sit and listen, which when you just think about the idea of human beings sitting and listening more um, skillfully to each other, mm-hmm. that goes a long way towards healing what it is we're trying to heal. Mm-hmm. So, But there's another question I want to ask you, which is divergent from the point we're on. Yeah. A moment ago, you talked about how people finding safe space then have the opportunity to connect and then we we covered this idea of there's this thing we call the comfort zone that when we get out of it, we have growth. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to link that to is the idea of that is the path of joy because mm-hmm. the brain wants variety. We want novelty. And so the comfort zone represents the path to joy, exiting the mm-hmm. comfort zone, because we find that our fears are usually not valid. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that we think and fear before we experience the experience that's actually more toxic to us than the actual experience in so many ways. And so I know that joy plays a big piece in, mm-hmm. in the way that you work. And I just wanted to, to raise that. And I'm, I'm scrambling for a question to ask you, but it looks something <laughs> like, yeah, it looks something like how much fun do you have helping people get out of their comfort zone? And do you agree with me that joy lives there? Yes. Oh my gosh. So there's something that I want to just like point out too that you said of like, uh, as you were talking, I, I, I don't know what it was, but this, the image versus like the, the unknown. And I think when we think about the unknown, there's like a, a blankness there. There's a, a, I'll say darkness there. And I was talking to my friend, um, Theon Freeman, um, on my show, uh, a few weeks ago and he had challenged me. He's like, you know, I want to like, really like think about this notion of like, the darkness and the unknown and like that being like very scary and terrifying and fearful of that. Um, because like we have been told, right. And there's, you know, some context to that about like darkness, black being bad. Right. Um, yeah, you know, black, bad, white, good. Like there's some context to that when we think Mm -hmm. about that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but we, we, when we think about the darkness and, and, and the, and what it is like, it actually isn't that scary. What scares us is that we don't know what's there. We don't know what exists there. And so the reframe that I do with my clients and I have so much joy in is that like, instead of thinking about the possibility of failure, instead of thinking about the possibility that like the career despair, the sadness, the hopelessness that I feel in this moment, in this space, does that it would exist there too. What if you shape that and flip that around and said like, what if something beautiful, amazing, fantastic, something that I could never have imagined exists there? And I think that that, that, that dreaming, that visioning, that like possibility, like really changes and like inspires folks to try. And that's why I say like there's something about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. 
There's something about reimagining a future for yourself, for um, your family, for, you know, the world that is heroic in my eyes, honestly. Some of my biggest heroes literally imagined a world that did not exist and continued to push forward to that. And I think if we did that for individually, like imagine what you could do as you, in your individual life, right? Somebody says like, I want to be a graphic designer, but I'm like stuck as an admin assistant. Why can't you be a graphic designer? Like start drawing. Like why, who has told you that you can't do this? Right. <laughs> um, and I really distill this down to like what my mom has like, just, and I just wrote about this yesterday. That's why it's like so fresh in my mind is that like, my mom literally said, I wanted you and your brothers to be limitless. I don't want anything, anybody to tell you that, that you could be held back by anything. And that has like fueled and driven me in my, in my work with my, co- with my clients and the work that I do with organizations. So like, I truly believe until like we, we see a, you know, something that is an impossible impasse, right? I don't think that anything is impossible. I'm going to keep trying and trying and trying and trying. And, and, and what, <laughs> what happens if you tried and you like, quote unquote, fail? No, you didn't fail. You just learned something. Oh, wow. I can't, I, you know, I'm not the best artist. Maybe I can't be a graphic designer. What did you learn in that experience? I don't believe in wasted time. So that's why I really kind of push people to just like, yo, you don't know what's there. It, it's, it really is like a, there really is like something that exists there that's just so exciting and joyous. Um, it's just scary in the beginning and scary is not the same thing as a uh, scare. The fear of something shouldn't prevent you um, from doing it. That just points out to me that one of my personal challenges is to not let failure be the end all decision of a choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of Kevin Hart. I've heard him speak how he thought he was getting this TV show and he was going to be mm-hmm. the star. And he thought, all right, this is it. And he's telling everybody and it just got shelved. Mm-hmm. And he was like, damn. And obviously that wasn't the end all of his story. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been if he allowed it to be right. 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 Um, yeah. And I just think about. Hmm. I think that if we actually really think about it, we are told no a lot more often in our lives. We're told yes, unless you have a lot of money, right? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> I will say there's a friend of mine who's very well off. He receives plenty of no's and challenges. <laughs> there it is. So, I mean, uh, so I think that there, we get we get told no a lot more often than we get told yes. But like, as psychology tells us, as or a lot of studies have shown that those knows that negativity sits in our mind so much heavier than those, the positivity, right? It takes like uh, how many positive things? I think five, seven or something like that to outweigh the one. I can't remember the specific thing, but that's a lot. Right. And so, and so when, and just imagine as going back to the data points that we're, that we get every single, like throughout our days, um, how much data, is like being thrown at us, negativity, all the things that we don't have. You wish you had this. Do go do that. Oh, you can never do that. Like there's all these inner critics and uh, the inner critic in our minds speaking all this, continuing that spiral of negativity that we're seeing on social media, advertisements driving down the way, comparison, all this stuff. Fam, like I would say, like run run your race, um, <laughs> go your journey. Like, yeah, you know, it's hard. But I think acknowledge that you feel unhappy about your situation, that you feel unhappy about where you are. But what about that makes you unhappy? What about this situation is not okay to you? What about this? Like, 
and then reframe it. Like start yeah. saying those gratitudes. What are you thankful for? What is like going positively in your mouth? Do you have, do you have friends? Do you have family? You're breathing. There's like different things like that. And it sounds to some folks are like, Oh my gosh, whatever. But like, honestly, it does. There's psychology. The back of this, it really does do something to your mental health, um, to your outlook on life, to you just feeling happier. Um, and then if there are legitimate things that you want to change, um, then you could start making a plan about that. So the career joy roadmap that I have is acknowledge the feelings uh, for what they are. Just acknowledge what you're feeling. Um, then practice self-compassion about like what you're feeling. Um, care for yourself about, you know, the anxiety or sadness or whatever, anger, frustration, feel those things, acknowledge those things. Um, uh, practice self-compassion, have compassion for yourself in that moment ask yourself what you need and then, all right, create a, create an action plan. Right. So it's just, it's just, yeah, there's, <laughs> I just don't let no be, or let failure or no be the thing that'd be like, all right, I'm just going to stop trying. You just don't know. Uh, maybe you just need to do a different route. Have you had experiences in your life where the hitting the ground lasted for a period of time? Like it took you, a period of time to get back up and go again. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I'll just go there. So I think when I, I went to, uh, I was the first of my family and like my immediate family to go to school. And my mom loves to say this, that I'm her test child because <laughs> I'm the oldest. Uh, but, um, but I think when I went to that space, it was a very, 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 very white school. Um, it was an evangelical, like a very evangelical school. So like, this is when I was um, still going to church and all that. And so I, what's interesting is I probably would not have said that at the time, but I was drowning and struggling. And I think that that was the start of my drowning and struggling um, and depression and anxiety, but I wouldn't have named it that I was like, why am I feeling this way? I'm tired. I'm sleepy, whatever. And I would just do a lot of stuff. And that continued on from my freshman year up until 2020. Like I think 20, I have to double check with my, my, my wife, but from 2017 to about 2020, 2021, um, were some of the most dark and depressive times of my entire life. Um, there were moments where I could not get out of bed. Um, there was a, there was one distinct, uh, my wife's birthday. Um, I had planned a birthday and everything like I planned a day. Uh, it started in the morning where like I was sobbing on the couch and I couldn't get up. And, uh, I said, I can't do anything like I can't. And, um, uh, and she was legitimately worried about me and she should have been, um, because I think that there's, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and so, and so I think I would say up until, a year and a half ago. And there's still moments of that, but like I, you know, like I said, I've been in therapy. I have a great support system. We moved out of the environment that we we're in. Um, but I think that it, it lasted <laughs> for about 12, 12-ish still, 12 ish to 13 years, Greg, of where like I, I just didn't know who I was. Like I didn't, everything that I thought I knew, everything that I would, I was doing people that I thought were my friends. Um, 
I was completely alone. I, I just felt so alone, felt so isolated, felt incompetent, felt like I couldn't do anything. Um, what was I doing? I was trying the things and mimicking the things of other people to be successful. It just, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel like myself. Um, and it, it really has been the last two years where I feel the most confident, the most self-assured, the, the most proud to be who I am in the skin that I am in, um, than I have been in a very long time, but it's been a very, very difficult road to get here. Um, but it goes back to like me acknowledging and having self-compassion and that part was been so, so difficult. And I think that there's, I know that I'm still there. I, I'm, I'm talking as if it's past tense. It's not past tense. <laughs> I'm just on the like much further pr- process and further along. But, um, but it, it, those times were incredibly hard for me. Um, very, very hard. Um, yeah, I talk, I talk my wife just, yeah, we talk about it every now and again. And she's just like, I just like, we look at pictures and we're like, yeah, like <laughs> the day before then, like, just, you, I don't know who that person was, but like you're smiling in this picture or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. Well, first what? I want to acknowledge that you have a wife and partner in your life mm. who's willing to be in the trenches with you. That's what mm. it sounds like, which is wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so shout out to her as you shouted yeah. out to your uh, therapist earlier. Yeah. Um, and you said that it was, over a decade of this path that just kept the pressure just grew to a point where there was like three solid years of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So like, even to give greater context for that, I mean, I went to this school, um, and I would say that like, I, I've talked about this. I like internalized to a point deeply internalized, um, anti-blackness. Like I, like I didn't realize to my uh, till years later, actually till literally this year that like how deep I internalized anti-blackness, how, how I was distancing myself from my blackness, how I thought, um, uh, getting connected to whiteness or whatever was my pathway to success and you know, whatever. And I would talk down about other black people, all this, other stuff, like, that's what I would do. Right. Wow. Um, and and there was something in me that like, I don't know, when you deny aspects of yourself, right? Parts of yourself, bits of yourself over and over and over again. And I think this is what, you know, this is what internalized anti-blackness does for a black person. But I think when we think about racism, misogyny, homophobia, all these different things, when we deny aspects in humanity of people. It chips away at your own humanity. It chips away at who you are. And I honestly think that that's what was happening to me because I legitimately did not know who I was. I think, and I say this and, and I think about this often because folks ask me like, what, like, how did you get to this or, you know, how are you so confident now or whatever? Um, and I, but I always reference the times where like, there was a good long period of time where like, I could not look in the mirror, um, for long periods of time. Like I had very little mirrors in my house. It was only in the bathroom or like, I didn't look at like, I would pick stuff, pick stuff to wear and I would just put it on. And I would like assume that it looked good, but I didn't like look in the mirror who that person was. And I think that there was a reason for that. I think that there was a reason because like, I did not like what I saw. Um, and it, 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 you know, because I went to that very wide school and it felt like 
um, it felt like everything around me uh, was telling me that like I needed to be white, I needed to act a certain way, I needed to be this, I needed to be that. Um, and I grew up, I grew up paycheck to paycheck. I grew up poor, um, and some of these folks, you know, were driving Range Rovers as, ni- as like nineteen year olds, and I'm just like, what is going on? Uh, and uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, and I remember even leaving college. Uh, after telling my mom I'm not going to go to law school, that was, uh, but, um, yeah, but, um, that I remember conversation, like, huh? that was, it was a conversation, but I think it was like, there was this loss that I had too, of like, all right, then what I'm going to do now? Like, what the hell am I going to do? I don't know. What the, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, uh, and then, uh, and so, and then I got this, this job at my alma mater, which I used to like, and I was treated just like a cog, like nothing. Like I didn't matter. Like, you know, um, and, uh, and then I kept bouncing around at different jobs and I kept experiencing like, you know, I have a master's degree. I'm very, I'm like, my confidence is starting to come back after I graduated and they're treating me like, I don't know anything. And who are you to say this? And like, I'm being isolated at work and all these things. And it just was a pattern until like, I really realized like, Oh, okay. Um, because of black it's not because i'm like not smart it's not because i'm like whatever it's it really is because i'm black and i'm like oh okay and i'm on top of that i'm neurodivergent so like there's some aspects of that where my adhd like i didn't that kicked in i'm just like oh my gosh so there's a lot going on that like it's just taking me a long time to process and navigate and um, have some self-compassion about where i was at and the decisions i was making so i want to ask the question that really speaks to this. Mm. You quantified this through time uh, to a period of about 18 months or 12 months ago or something. Mm. And my question is, what do you think the mental framework is or the spiritual, mental, emotional framework Mm. that is the foundational shift? What shifted? Mm. Aside from the recognition that these other people had a problem Mm-hmm. that had them showing up as racists. Mm-hmm. What was it that transpired in you that relit the fuse, the light of identity, relit the, the awareness of your own capacities and your own value as a human? Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a few things. And when I say, and I'm going to reference the framework cause I got to, because like, this is the thing is the framework that I, that I developed or the roadmap that I developed is, is really the, the steps that I took. It was, it was so long of denying the feelings that I had, denying that I was angry, um, denying that I was frustrated, that I was sad, that I was not just happy, not just not happy, but like, like there was, I would like, I was depressed. Like there's, I was anxious, all these different things. And instead of trying to fight and get over them, I decided to sit and be with them. Mm. And that goes with the self-compassion part. Right. So like the anger part is the hardest, was the hardest one for me. Um, where I oftentimes, instead of, I say I pointed the finger at other people, but a lot of the times, you know, I looked at myself and was like, I could do better. I could be better. I could do this, like whatever. Mm. And I would get angry and I got angry at myself 
I got angry that I wasn't making more money. I got angry that I wasn't more successful. I got angry that I can't buy that Range Rover that my mom, I promised my mom when I was a little kid. I, I got just all this anger. And I just remember sitting with that anger um, and processing with it and just really treat it with a level of humanity, right? Just talking to myself. And it's just like, Jonathan, tell me why you're angry. Hmm. Like, where does that anger come from? Tell me what's going on. And um, when I did that, it unearthed in me that I, there was an unfairness that I felt. I wasn't angry at myself. I, I, I was angry that I have worked so hard that I, that I, I felt like I did all the right things and it just wasn't as easy for me as some of the other people that I was like looking at on social media. And I was like, that guy was a complete jackass in school. Um, that dude, like he made jokes all the time. Like, like he's a, he was a jerk to people. Like I treat people with respect and kindness. Like I felt like I was in the right rooms, all this other stuff. And nobody's, nobody's like reciprocating any of this. And I just got so angry with that. And I just remember like, and I remember telling myself, be, that's okay. Be angry. Cause that is unfair. That isn't right. And I, I just remember feeling that. And then I just started crying. Cause then I realized like that surface level emotion was anger, but it was actually really sad. I felt like I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel like, you know, the same love and kindness and respect that I gave other people that I didn't receive. And it like legitimately broke my heart. And I had then, from there, I was like, damn. So like, that's the acknowledging the feelings and then having self-compassion for myself. And then I was like asking myself, what do I need? And then I said, the next part, I, what I needed was I need to find people that would do that for me. I need to reevaluate my community. Like who are the people that are going to care for me and love me the same way that I do that for them. And if they don't do that to the same way that that's fine, but you're not going to get the same access to me. Um, and I can't give you that same energy and attention as I did before. And so, um, that's what I did. And then I told my wife that we need to move out of this very, very white space. Cause I can't live in a, uh, County that is less than 1% black. That's just not going to work anymore. Um, and then, yeah, I just started acknowledging, like once I acknowledged my feelings, then I was able to like, see, Oh shoot. Like I, that's what I need more of. Um, so th going through that framework, acknowledging and then creating um, action steps for myself and, and what we need to change. Um, and then the other part is like surrounding myself. That community aspect was like huge. Like when I said earlier, that community can be transformational and healing. Like that is exactly what community has done. Like getting around more and more black folks, getting around like like-minded black folks. It's not like I have not been around a lot of black folks before, but it was like, we, we didn't think the same. It wasn't like mine. It's just, they were just different folks. I'm like, I don't vibe with you. So I'm like, Oh, I, like people like me don't exist, but that's not true. Like when I, you know, started getting on LinkedIn a lot more joining groups and like finding my people I, and like, I get teary. I thinking about it because it really has like, I think back to the, that lost, scared, isolated, anxious, depressed Jonathan. And I want to like give him a gigantic hug. I want to just like mm -hmm. hug him because you will find your people. Like you're going to find the people that like get you, understand you. You don't have to change for anybody. You don't have to be anything that you don't want to be. You don't have to pretend. Um, you could just be, you could just, and it'll be all right. Cause there's, there's people that are going to love you. They're going to think you're brilliant. That are going to invite you to things that are going to 
be genuinely happy to see you that are, and you don't have to f- try as hard with them. Um, and that's particularly what I've found in the last like two ish years, um, friends and community and all of them are black, but a lot of them are that like do that for me that like will show up for me and will be like, bro, I got you. Like you didn't even have to ask. Like all you had, all you had to say was like, Hey, I need you. I would have been there. And it's just like so beautiful for me. And so like, that's, that's kind of been the transformation and, and, I wish I set a frame. I said it's sort of a framework, but that's kind of been my, my journey to that. Um, yeah. Well, it seems at some point you refuse to give up your agency. Mm. And I think that's the step, the step you discerned of what do I need? And then what are the action steps? There's that moment between what I need, where the frozenness of oppression is broken through and the belief that you can take action that will lead to something iterative. That's mm-hmm. the moment, right? That's, that's where agency gets reestablished. And it's really clear that you've seized that for yourself. And, mm-hmm. um, I just want to thank you and acknowledge for the depth and vulnerability mm-hmm. and, and truth that you shared with us. Wow. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. That, um, <clears throat> what you just shared helped I just heard a gentleman's story. He's a sophomore in high school here in Marin County, which is in Northern California. That's where Mark and I are. Mm. And there's uh, a real resurgence of um, overt racism that's currently going on through the school system and community. Mm. And he shared his story just Tuesday night. What you just shared helped deepen his story because he's mm. on that very similar path. He's a man of color and Mm. heard something in the hallway that was said by a white person with the sense like there was nothing wrong with this Mm. individual saying what they said. Like they could just say it out loud and not have any recourse. Yeah. Yeah. I, what's interesting is I used to have some friends that lived in Marin County. They just moved. um, But we visit them all the time. And I actually remember working at a coffee shop. Um, in that little downtown area, actually, um, in, I think they lived in Rafa. I can't remember. It's over there, but, um, Santa, yes, 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 yes. I remember working at a coffee shop and there was this older black man that was like, he just stared at me. This is a term called the white gaze and like, just was staring at me. And I'm like, how you doing? He didn't say anything. He just turned and just kept eating his sandwich. And I just remember that instant so vividly because I, and I remember walking through that neighborhood feeling incredibly uncomfortable. Um, not that I didn't belong there because I don't feel that anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you're here, I could be here too. Um, but, uh, but I just remember feeling really, really uncomfortable in that neighborhood. And I'm like, a lot of people are staring at me as if I don't belong here. I just, re- I just remember that. And that's kind of like the, that's kind of like the, uh, those paper cuts of, of racism that, you know, a person of color experience. But I think there is a level of boldness with um, racism that has uh, resurged in the last like seven years, eight years. That is not surprising. It's, I'm not like, I knew it was there. So it's not like, Oh wow. This is like, well, it's shocking. It, but it, it's it's uh not surprising 
but it's definitely shocking, like of how like brazen folks will say say some of the things that they're saying with no repercussions. They're just like, I'm just speaking about truth or whatever. And I'm just like, okay. Or, or first amendment. I love what people say that. Cause I'm like, you have no, you have no idea of the historical context of like, um, of like free speech or even like the, the constitutionality of what free speech even, even is. And I'm like, you actually need to go back and take a civics class. <laughs> Cause if you say that, and I was a history poli sci, um, in an undergrad. And so like, I just, it just cracks me up when people say that I'm like, you need to read the constitution again. You need to look at the federal pla- federalist paper. You need to like actually dive into what that actually means because they were under like uh, monarch tyranny when they were saying that um, we are in a, you know, semi uh, democracy. Right. And so like you can say whatever you want, but you also have to face the repercussions of what you, of your actions. So if you call me the N word, those are fighting words. Like to me, the historical context of that word that actually like that's violent to me. Like you threatened my life. And so like, you have to be prepared for those repercussions of that. Yeah. Um, uh, and just like, um, and so I think when, when students and that breaks my heart too, because I think that there's a, there's a, a discourse that I've just seen. It It actually happens a lot in like, in like, uh, in like, uh, in school systems, whether it's, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, even college. Definitely. I face a lot in college, but the, um, but there's an ignorance to it, but there's also a level of maturity that these kids, these kids have, um, particularly in like high school, that there's a level of accountability that needs to be had. And, um, and it boggles my mind, uh, how ill-equipped that, um, uh, school administrators are, um, teachers are when it comes to that. And that goes to more of like the school aspect and how teachers are trained. Um, there's no cultural competency that's taught in a lot of, uh, um, those things. And I'm not going to get on that pedestal. Uh, that's, that's my wife area no, of expertise, but <laughs> you can hop on it. But yeah. cause that's part of what's being brought up in the conversations mm. is, um, people saying, well, your teachers are ill-equipped to have these conversations and the teacher saying, I don't want to engage in the conversation because I'm ill-equipped mm-hmm. and the supervisor saying, you can't use that as an excuse anymore. Mm-hmm. And I would say a teacher is a place of leadership and part of the responsibility of leadership is doing the extra work to educate oneself. Mm-hmm. And that's I would say, yeah. Greg and I recently had this conversation and I pushed back a little and I pushed the, the, the necessary places in the parentage that mm. the, the, the actual place that this needs to be happening for people is their parents need to teach their children that this is not okay. And that, that by abdicating that to the school system, we are sort of creating this illusion around what, what is really going on. And, mm. I think that as I sit right now, I'm, I have a better understanding of why that kind of thing is actually important for educators to have that mm-hmm. skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, I also felt called to share something with you, Jonathan, that is insightful and it lives in a place where it might feel like white centering. So I, okay. but I want to say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and there's our privilege. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, how about this? Are you willing to hear it from me? 
I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm curious. My, my curiosity Got is peaked. So yeah, yeah. So I'll, have my, I, I'll have my guards up, uh, just ready. <laughs> what I encountered in my own experience as I confronted the recognition of who I am that is in collusion with racism mm. and the ways that I participate, even though my ego has a different story about who I am, the shame that I experienced in that recognition drove me to resistance that had me almost want to go back to claiming my white supremacy and hiding in that. Hmm. And so what I have come to realize about people who look like me is that when they get confronted with the recognition of their complicity there's a powerful urge to retreat into the safety of their privilege and their, uh, and the way that this culture is structured mm -hmm. and having had that experience and then having been willing to go through the difficulty and discomfort of decolonizing myself that way, mm -hmm. I have more understanding of why there's a resurgence of the racism. Mm-hmm. Because people are attached to this identity, especially of my generation since the 60s, of being colorblind mm -hmm. and of not being racist. And when they're confronted with it, the emotional experience they have is very challenging and mm -hmm. can create a kind of desire to hide, a desire to retreat into the safety of their privilege. And that's mm -hmm. not me condoning it or trying to what about it or any of that. It's just a recognition yeah. of the struggle that people who look like me face as we try to deconstruct this part of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, does that feel useful to you? Was my, no, I mean, the thing is, I know that <laughs> I know that. In, in the, in a lot of, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of folks who have these conversations, facilitate, teach, train on this, know that. I think that there are optimistic folks that think that, you know, I can talk them into or, you know, navigate it, placate to their whiteness enough and their egos enough to get them to not be racist anymore, or at least treat people more with respect. I have used to be that way. I'm no longer that way. Um, and the reason is this, is that like the level. So I'll even, I'll even open up more to y'all. So at the beginning of this year, I started um, I'm a fantastic facilitator. Like, I don't know if folks are listening to this and they're like, wow, this guy can really communicate. I, like, I know, I, I know I'm a really good communicator <laughs> and like charismatic, all that stuff. Like, I know that, um, sometimes I can be clearer and a little less long winded, but, um, shout out my ADHD, but <laughs> like, the, um, but like, I think that, um, uh, at the beginning of this year, I do like a lot of DEI facilitation and stuff like that for, a wide variety of things with my company, common, uh, with my other, uh, company, common culture with my business partner and, um, and some other contracts that I have, I do it. I'm really good at it. Um, but what I noticed at the beginning of this year is that I am, I've started to feel really anxious before it. And I used to do some, I used to do like plays in theater when I was younger. And I know what performance anxiety is. I know what that performance jitter jitters are. And this was not that mm. it was like a deep, 
deep, deep dread to lead these times. And I've never led a time where somebody yelled at me or white dude got like really frustrated or angry with me. Um, I've never been yelled at or anything like that. I've had people disagree with me and we've navigated that pretty well. Um, um, but I've never had somebody who gave me a low rating. Like they just said they didn't, they, they just didn't give me a rate or whatever. And it's taken me almost a year to figure out why I feel this way. Why, why is that dread, the anxiety coming up when I'd never felt it before? And it goes back to what I said before is that our body, um, remembers our body like knows before we cognitively can think it. I've been reading uh, my grandmother's hands by, uh, Resma Menachem, fantastic book, but it's been like shining this light on trauma. Um, that trauma exists in here, that something happened. And sometimes you don't know what the thing is, but that's what's been happening to me is I'm having a physical trauma response right before I lead one of these DEI facilitations. And I was wondering why. And I finally got clarity from a friend of mine after we were talking about it this week. They said, they said, I would imagine that the type of DEI practitioner you are, which which I'm the type of person that I like to be honest. I like to be authentic. I like to have deep conversations that go beyond just surface level stuff is that like you leading these conversations around surface level things around things that folk that you feel you cognitively know that folks should already understand and get, and, and they probably do because they've heard it that like to lead these times is just so draining to you. And what I have felt is, uh, is that like my body is reacting because I'm dis I'm living disassociated from how, uh, from how I know I want to do and leave these times and spaces from what I'm actually doing. And so all that to say is that like, I have entered into a space where if you want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, if you want to talk about theory, um, if you want to talk about what ifs, if you want to do all that stuff, you got to find somebody else. Because I can't do that, right? I, I, I have to invest my time with, invest my time and my energy and my focus and my labor, both physical and emotional labor, with folks who want to have deep, impactful, and life-changing conversations, trainings, and sessions with me because they actually care about making a difference in a change and the people that they interact with and in their own individual lives. Like, I think that that, I think that that, that acknowledgement of myself has been so freeing and so like wonderful and, uh, less anxiety driven. Um, because like, I know that there's people that are probably I've interacted with that are just, they don't like black people. They would never live with black people. They would never trade places with black people. Um, they say all kinds of wild stuff about, you know, all kinds of marginalized people and they will just exist. That is what it is. It will never change. Racism will never end. Um, it won't. Um, and so like, I've just accepted that I've accepted that. And I, I've, I've committed myself to doing the work that matters and what will change. And so, yeah, long and winded answer, but yeah, I, I know that uh, it's, uh, that's not Got anything it. that's new to me. Uh, so my uh, next question, <clears throat> if I may, Greg is, isn't that the space, that space that you don't want to work? Isn't it the responsibility of people who look like me who have done some of that work to enter into and to do that work with other people who look like me? Isn't that the Absolutely. call? 
Absolutely. Because it's actually not, to your point, what you said earlier, Mike, it's not my responsibility to teach white people not to be racist. Right. Um, I didn't create racism. My ancestors didn't create racism. Um, uh, and so I think I know that white people got to talk about it. Like, I think that the folks that have chosen to lead and in, lean into the hard discomfort, uncomfortable, anxiety provoking, lean into the, you know, they felt that white guilt, but like, all right, it's not about me, other people, right? You have to acknowledge it's not about you. Um, and the people that have done, done the hard work and continue to do the hard work, they push and argue and fuss and fight with those people that have it. Um, I think that for me, uh, what's uh, just a prime example of this. I had somebody, I talked about, you know, equal pay for, um, the NWSL and the, uh, uh, national women's soccer team. Um, I, t- I had somebody on my, a friend of mine who is a journalist who interviews these folks, uh, who knows what she's talking about on there had some dude reach out to me and was like, Hey, I think she was wrong. Like there's plenty of stuff that was not right in that or whatever. And he said, you know, women don't like to work in mines or refineries cause it's hard work. And I said, okay. I said, if you want to have a conversation about this, whatever, let's do it. And I wasn't going to pass it off to her. Like that's my responsibility to talk to this dude and like set him straight. And I, and I did, we talked for 45 minutes off the record. And I said, you are out of your depths. I study work for a living. You are wrong. That's not right. And this is not even his area of expertise. He, he sent me videos of a black dude proving his point. I'm like, I didn't even bring up the racial components to this, but I yeah. said, bro, why would you send me a black person to try and prove your point? There's plenty of other people that look like you that could prove your point just fine. So it's, so I, and I did that work. It was exhausting. It was annoying. It was frustrating. But to my wife, to um, my um, uh, women identifying friends and all that, like that's more than exhausting. That's more than burdensome. That's an emotional labor and emotional and a physical toll that like they have dealt with all of their lives. So like for you to be dis- uncomfortable, for me to be uncomfortable for 45 minutes to be frustrated, I, I don't carry that with me everywhere. Like white people need to do more, more and more and more, like significantly more and not take the spotlight or the attention or the, what is it? Money <laughs> of other, uh, of DI practitioners. Um, but they need to give respect to those that are doing the work where they got it. Um, give space, all those things. And just like acknowledge all of that stuff of a combination of all the things that we've been talking about today. So this is a good point to bring up if you identify and are racialized as white, or if you know someone who's identified and racialized as white, who needs to do this work, (laughs) there's a place for you to go called the remember Institute. (laughs) And it is a place where people of color have chosen to do this work and who mm. get compensated for doing this work. And both Greg and I have participated in the work there. And so if you have this issue and you want help with it, this is a great place for you to go. The remember Institute and Jonathan, it's someplace you can send people who look like me who uh, need this help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I would also say too of like, not that this, this place is, it's just coming up because it's another conversation that I had is that like, I said that I was a DEI practitioner earlier, which I am, but I've never really labeled myself as that. I'm an organizational psychologist with an equity lens. Like I, I have the knowledge and able to do the work, um, do DEI work in the, in the context of organizational effectiveness and development. Um, but I would say that what I've seen in the last 
few years post 2020, particularly, but it started before then a little bit is that like, there's a lot of DEI practitioners, institutes, all these different things that are popping up. And again, not saying this about remember, but that are in it for money. Legitimately, they're in it for money. And I think that like, as somebody who's just like starting their journey or maybe are, have in their, been in their journey, it's like, um, it's like, Find the reputable places and institutes and see their track record. Uh, talk to people that have gone through it um, and like check where your emotions are when you're hearing some of the feedback. If you hear some of the feedback or you're vetting these places and you're seeing that and you still feel comfortable, then I think that I would, that would be a gut check to me that I need to find some place that's actually going to be challenging to me and like make me feel a little bit squeamish or upset or frustrated or annoyed. Right. Cause that's at that point, you know, <laughs> when it, it, that, like, like you might be on track, you might be checking confronting the thing that needs to be confronted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I would, that, that's just my like, you know, the flag that I would put up. Um, uh, yeah. For folks. It feels really generous. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, like these, I hope that the people who have devoted their life to DEI, et cetera, are getting paid. Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want my time and energy to help you heal, pay me because mm-hmm. life is, life is, uh, finite. Absolutely. A, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the only reason why I say that is because yes, pay them 100%. But I think with <laughs> capitalism, uh, there are folks who I personally know people who they did incredible amounts of harm all of a sudden are parading themselves around as practitioners. All of a sudden are saying, are posting the right things and, and stuff like that because it's okay to do that. Right. Uh, so that's all, that's the only reason why I say that just in case that that was unclear for other folks. Yeah. No, no, this is what's clear, but it's also clear to me that we are human beings on Absolutely. a um, path of change. Mm, yeah. And like one of my favorite people in life is um, Malcolm X. Mm, mm. And part of what I respect with him is his willingness to, transform and change as his experiences and knowledge grew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely yeah. brilliant, man. I want to read more um, of his work and things more about him. It, yeah. He was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. His autobiography is on point. I think it was an yeah. autobiography, but mm. yeah. Yeah. And again, encouraging that an individual who's a pimp and, you know, ironing his hair and all this, and then goes to jail, mm. comes out and joins the uh, black Muslim movement. Mm. And where he was when he was killed, he was really, I hope I'm not out of line, but I'd say he's one of my brothers. Like he's, mm. I think someone who had my back because he had humanity's back. And part of that was a calling a calling to what's real in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you already named what I was going to say. There it is. And Fred Hampton also set an example of this, and he paid dearly for it because he was mm-hmm. weaving a social context that was bringing people of poverty who are identified as white into the conversation around classism mm-hmm. and and what we'll call economic oppression. Mm-hmm. And this is all woven into this context. 
I think this is a powerful thing and I'm grateful for your depth, Jonathan, Mm -hmm. but also would like to move the conversation into something that honors you a little bit more. I would love to know more about both of the organizations that, that you're, you're running and what your aspirations are from the place of now having moved into action, Mm -hmm. you're moving into that place of developing your life what are the kinds of things you're looking to create and how are they related to the work you're doing with the organizations that you run? Yeah. So the two organizations that I, I, I have is um, the first one is uh, um, my coaching practice. So I do a career transition coaching practice where, well, I coach, but I also do speaking and facilitation, but, um, but it's centered around um, helping black millennials experience career joy. Um, and I say black millennials because that's an experience. That's what I'm passionate about. But if the message still resonates with you, I'm more than happy, uh, to have a conversation with you and see if we're a fit. But in that I walk people through the transition of finding career joy. And I think some folks think around like career transition. What is that? Like, you know, just finding a job, but like, these are people that know how to find a job. They're very competent. Like I, anybody I've worked with, I'm like, you, you don't, you need me, but you don't need me in the way that you think you do because like they're like, they'll show me the resume. I'm like, this is impeccable. Um, they're successful people, whatever. But it is navigating the, the, um, career emotions that they've experienced. It is, um, it is uncovering all the things that they have, they have pushed down or stamped down because they had to, to survive in the workplace. They had to, to be quote unquote successful. And so we navigate that to find places where they can actually be themselves, who they are and, it is in alignment with who they are, which is in essence, like that's where you reach that career joy, that peak, you know, you don't even have to be making a million dollars or making a whole lot of money, um, to experience career joy. Uh, there's just a lot of different things we do. So I do that. Um, and then, uh, and then I'm going to be actually speaking about what career joy is, how, how can organizations get that? How can teams get that? How can leaders, um, create that, that space and environment for their teams. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of speaking on that. So if you're interested in like having me come in for black history month, I'm doing um, bookings for that now. Um, and I only do five. So the first five they give me, that's it, mm. uh, for the month of February. Um, and then, um, and then I do one-on-one coaching with folks. So, um, I'm currently taking clients right now. Um, at the beginning, actually at the beginning of the new year, I'll, I'll be taking some new clients. So, um, folks are interested there or know anybody they can send them my way. Um, and for common culture, we do leadership t- training, um, development for honestly, for managers and leaders who want to be the best l- leaders that they can be, who, like I said before, who want to have deep, impactful and life-changing sessions and trainings that will lead them to be the best leaders that they can be. And in those times, we talk about practical things like communication, but we infuse that with like, do you acknowledge like how you show up in that space? Yeah. We talk about power and privilege and stuff, but like there is really like practical things that folks don't even acknowledge that they're doing. And so we really like do the one-on-one basics with folks and help them see, um, maybe the way that they're not communicating, maybe the way that they're not communicating or leading with their team, or how can you be a little bit more inclusive and different things like that? So we've shifted our model, um, to being more open-based trainings. So we're going to be launching those, um, in March of next year. So be on the lookout for that about, um, that. And then, um, yeah, those are all the things I got going on in the world. Uh, some dreams that I have is 
I really want to, should I say it? Okay. I'll say it. Um, I'm working on developing like a joy assessment. So essentially what that means is like, how much joy do you have not in your life, but in your career and like, do those two things align? Um, so I'll be, I'll be developing that next year. So hopefully I'll have that done by the end of next year. Yeah. Um, you okay, Mark? I want to real yeah, quickly. While you were talking, this thumbs down icon what appeared on your screen. Do you know what oh, that is? See it? Goodness gracious. I know what that is. It's because I use my phone as a camera and my reactions are on. So is is it going to do it anymore? No, I just turned it off. So if I turn it back on. Oh, so yeah. you accidentally yeah. did a thumbs down. I did a thumbs down on my own thing. Well, I'm really right. I, did the, I did the balloons. Yeah. All right, <laughs> all right. So everyone who's watching, that was a technical glitch. It was not yeah. an editorial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, a good clarification. No, they're all, they're all in on them. <laughs> That's hilarious. Wow. If, if, yeah. If I may, I'd love to just talk about the wall behind you because yeah. it seems like there's a lot going on there yeah. and it just keeps resonating with me. Like the record, what's, yeah. what's up for you? So um, I'll take it down for y'all. So this record actually is our me and my wife's first dance song. So it's by Major, um, Why I Love You. So it's basically the lyrics of the song spun around in a record. Um I have uh, everyday courage behind me, which is um, which is a, a, like a phrase my friend came up with um, when it was a lifestyle like magazine we used to do several years back, and he had these and he gave them out to all the the writers and folks that volunteered to um, put that together, and that's just a really helpful reminder of like every day have courage, every day go, every day move, um, like a little animation picture of me and my wife here. Yeah, Juneteenth stuff. Yeah, Black Panther, You Are Power, different things like that. Just I like to have um, one aesthetic is really important to me and it communicates a lot. Um, but also the environment, like looking at these things, my wall. Um, yeah, it's just like moments of encouragement, uh, things that I may have forgotten in the moment um, to just like keep me going, keep uh, keep me grounded, uh, remind me of who I am, remind me of who I do it for and remind me of the people that have my back. Awesome. Thank you. So how do people get a hold of you if they are interested in any of the workshops or the one-on-one coaching? What's the best way to reach you? Absolutely. So the two best ways are, um, one is, uh, well, there's three best ways. So the first one is find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Um, uh, I, you can follow me there. Uh, I'll post about any workshops that, um, I'm leading myself that I'm a part of um, any panels or anything that I'm sitting on, anything like that. Anything that common cultures is doing will be listed out there. Um, and then you can go to Hey, Jonathan Dumas.com. That's Hey, Jonathan, J O N A T H A N D as in dog, U M A um, S as in Sam.com. Um, and you could uh, sign up for my uh, email list and um, there you'll be caught up and uh, I'll keep those folks in the loop on what's going on. Um, as well. And then I'm actually developing kind of like a mini course to walk people through my career joy, um, roadmap that I've outlined for folks so that they kind of get a, a clear idea of what that is, um, how they can implement it in their lives and then follow the show, uh, that I have highly visible and misunderstood, um, everywhere. It's literally everywhere. Um, five stars everywhere, all that stuff. So you can, um, catch us there too. Highly visible and misunderstood the podcast. I, 
highly visible and a little misunderstood. And a little misunderstood. A quick question. Your career joy roadmap. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's a roadmap that would fit on any aspect of one's life? Yes, I truly do. Um, I really, really do. I think that if, if you, if you are trying to find some aspect of change or joy in your life, I think that there is, that, that it can be used because it's, I mean, joy is a deeper sense of just happiness. Happiness is momentary, but joy is like, I could be, I don't know. I could sit in silence, house be empty, don't have any electricity on, but like I could sit with my family um, and look around and just have like a high level of thankfulness because we have a roof over our head. Right. Um, and just like know that as long as we're together, um, like there are beautiful, beautiful times ahead. Like there's a soul satisfying happiness, um, deep peace, contentment that joy is. Um, and it doesn't just have to be with career, but, but I think because America, we work so much, I think there's this idea that work has to be miserable, that we have to be sad or despairing in our work. And I don't think that there is. I think that there is a, a beautiful intersection of of um, of self and work that can exist. And I think that that point is career joy. Beautiful. Well, um, we have one I, more question. Yeah. Yes. And I got to say, Jonathan, just your presence has lifted my spirit this morning. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's beautiful. Oh, you're going to make me cry, Greg. <laughs> I've already been crying, so what about fair play? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. I see you too, Jonathan. I've had the same warmth, emotional response as well, and I'm super yeah. grateful for your time and energy and your articulate uh, ability, your mm. ability to communicate. Oh, my goodness. I've received so much from this yeah. conversation. I love that. I love that. And it goes back to something we talked about earlier, right? Is like when I see, well, actually it's two things. It's the way they all opened up the time before we even hit record. Right. Um, and just like one acknowledging where you're at, cause I'm going to show up this way anyways. But I think when you provide a space for folks to be themselves, for folks to share their story and you, meeting them and honoring them um, and me just reciprocating just like how much I appreciate this space. It does something to the environment. Um, it does something for folks to feel brave and safe and courageous. And so I just want to like commend y'all and honor y'all for like doing that. Um, not in appeasing whiteness, but, but um, are placating to whiteness, but in, um, in just like being human um, and seeing the humanity in me and the people that you like have these conversations with. So I, I just like, I, I that's what like started this. I just want to say that cause folks didn't see that part. Um, but the, the second piece of that is again, is like seeing each other's humanness, seeing each other's humanity, being able to s- sit in the space and be uncomfortable and be willing to be challenged and ask the questions and ponder, um, and wonder, um, that like allows for us to have like deep, impactful and wonderful conversations. And so, uh, that, that, that's, that's where, that's where it is. And, um, yeah, just I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for this time and space, and um, it's been a joy talking with y'all. Awesome. All right, here's our final very important yeah. question we ask every guest. I love it. Eminem or Foo Fighters? Hmm. I would say 
okay, so I'm not just saying this because uh, he's a hip hop artist. Because I listen to a lot of Foo Fighters, but Eminem, the way lyrically, just lyrically, the way that he, it's mind boggling. I don't know. I'm like, I listen to, I listen to lyrics. I'm like, did you just do that? (laughs) Just like completely rock, rock your world. Foo Fighters have been like fun for me. Some of the music videos were amazing. Um, But like, yeah, Eminem, just like, I listen to him nonstop. Um, through middle school and high school, all just nonstop. Anything he drops, it's like, I'll listen to it now, but like, there's some Eminem that just, to this day, I'm like, I cannot believe you thought to combine these concepts and layer it that way in the double entendre and just the, yeah, lyrical gymnastics that that man can pull off. It's unreal. Yeah, and his dexterity in the way yeah. you're just like, who does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even the t- it's like it's not just like lyrically too; it's tone. He uses his tone and the lyrics to like convey the message and land and hit a particular emotion, and then like he'll like do these fluctuations, pauses, jumps, speed. It's it's the whole plethora. Like I think I love music, so <laughs> so like I'm just like getting in the depths of it, but. Um, but like for folks who like are just like, oh, I just was, I just like Eminem or whatever or Foo Fighters or whatever. But like there's a lot of time and energy like people don't just do that. They like it's purposeful. It really is purposeful. So, yeah, but I will say Eminem. Yeah. All right. Bye. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you very, very much for sharing your time and your life with us. Absolutely. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much, Greg, Mark. This was this was awesome. Highlight of my highlight of my week. This is so fun. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. Absolutely. Recording stopped.